Hello, good morning. You're very welcome to the program. Between now and nine, will we be the ones to let the hen harrier become extinct? A surprise for Hannah and Granny leaves them with a dilemma. And spring calving 2024, we're in the thick of it now. Very good morning to you. I have never been one of those in the spring begins in February camp, but the racket out of the birds from half past four this morning, followed by one of the most glorious sunshines that you're going to see, at least here on the East Coast anyway, might just force something of a rethink on me. Enjoy it, folks. Get up and out there. If you have ever read Country Living magazine, you will know Catherine O'Leary. If you've read Country Living magazine, magazine in the last year, you will know that it has been one hell of a year for Catherine O'Leary. The kind of year that has left her even in the middle of the long, exhausting slog of spring calving, feeling very grateful for a lot of things. Brenda went to the family farm in Carrigrahan near Blarney to meet Catherine, Tim and the family. Come here, come here. When we told them to come out, they come out. Brenda, I absolutely love calves. Um, I don't know, every calf that's born is the same miracle to me that uh, from the first day that I saw a calf being born. They're just, it's so special and it's, it's, it's such a miracle of nature. And it was in a calf shed literally to this day. Yes. To this day, the 15th of February yes. 2023, yeah. that you noticed that your arm was swollen. This day last year I was in the calf shed. I was hauling out one of those feeders that we're looking at there. Yeah. I thought I yanked my arm, Brenda. I thought it was as simple as that. I started giving out to Cullum about high gates and, and, and so on because it was in the other shed because I thought I had a bone out. And I even asked Cullum to feel it, you know, and I was saying, look, do you feel that bone there? And to this day, we both wonder why we didn't think cancer. Mentally, things happen us, and, and or psychologically, you put it away. And I began to think, this is something else. And then I showed it to Tim, and he said, gosh, Kay, that's a lump. And from there, sure, we had the scans and all the rest of it, and, 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 and then the diagnosis. It dawns on you then how serious uh, it, it looked. It's a lot to be talking about in a cow shed or it's calf really shed, isn't cow it? Shed, yeah. Once the medics realised that there was a tumour there and so on and that it was quite serious, it was here in my latissimus dorsi, um, just that muscle there that's just just behind your shoulder, I suppose. It was just devastating. So we cried for a month, really, mm. you know, trying to get our heads around it and then things improved. Um, and once I started chemotherapy on the morning, I started chemotherapy I'd, or the day before I'd had a PET scan and the PET scan revealed that the cancer wasn't actually in the nodes in, in my lungs. So there was suddenly hope yeah. that this was, you know, it had metastasized, but it was localized at the same time. And that having done my chemotherapy, I would have surgery and I, I have had surgery. So I am so lucky, Brenda, to have had the care medically and family-wise, you know, I wouldn't be here, but for all of that. Uh, I named two cats in here named Rosie and Rory. So, so the red, so the red one in that pen is Rory. That sucking sound, Brenda, is music to my ears. It just shows healthy calves. It's, it's, just, it's just gratifying to hear it. They're hungry and they're happy and they're getting on with it. 
You're doing a job well done. Exactly. I think we'll, we'll make our way up to the house Brilliant. now and we might have a cup of tea. But I just want to show you my own bedroom right. because I had to spend in the last year an awful lot of time in it. And I just want you, you to feel what I could feel while that was happening. Are you coming, Ricky? Yes. Yes. I'm always going back to my granny. Ricky's mantra at the moment is, wherever you are going, Granny, I'm going. Where is Granny going? I'm coming. I was thinking about that Granny will be the best Granny in the whole wide world. <laughs> very lucky Granny, Catherine. Aren't I very lucky, Granny, to hear, to have that kind of care and that kind of love. Isn't it lovely? You had so much on. Then your decisions about your career as a school teacher for how many years? 20 years in oh. Our Lady of Good Counsel School. I, I really found it hard to leave and they gave me the most amazing send-off. Yeah. And But there was part of me wanting to go, no, I don't want to go, I want to stay, I want to come back, you know. But, you know, life moves on and you just you just got to go with the flow. But it's hard to accept. You just have to, you just have to. And I will. When you say you will, that means you haven't yet, if you know well, what I mean. Well, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> I probably haven't yet. There are, you know, ah, it takes time. I mean, it does take its toll and the, the drugs take their toll on your joints and on, you know, you do age because of it. Well, I suppose facing your own mortality, staring it in the face, you realise the things that are important. Can I say we haven't even got to the house yet? No, you no. haven't. Yeah. <laughs> you want to play a song? Strange Boat by the Water Boys. By the Water Boys. Love yeah. music all the time. I absolutely love music, but during my treatment, for some reason, I stayed away from it. It was as if this treatment is going to damage my love of music. And I love Leonard Cohen, and I love Bruce Springsteen, and I, you know, there's so many that I love. But I loved the Water Boys from very many years ago. And when I'd wake in the middle of the night, this is the song that I would play for some rate. I was in the strange boat and I was had strange cargo. And it was really funny that, you know, and strange really that this song resonated for me. But I played it and played it and played it. I love the voice of Mike Scott. What did it do for you? Got me through the next few minutes. Calmed me. And I kept on. Now, I hope I'm not intruding too much. Just me and our listeners coming into your bedroom. It really was, was a lovely place to be, but yet I was so alone. In here, this was where it all happened. This is where I had to stay, and you had to but, recover and, and to recover. rebuild. Yeah, but I we sit down. Yeah, and I used to be able to sit here on the bed. You see, and there's the farmyard over, and I'd hear the noises, and when the cows would graze here in this plot, so when they'd come here, it would be every three weeks, and it would be time for chemo again. The fifth time, we'll say that I saw those cows grazing, I knew I was finished. You know, the cow cycle nearly marked my cycle of chemotherapy. And if you lean a little bit here, sure. you'll see Colm and Elaine's house. I mean, oh, we're so beautiful. lucky to have Colm at home farming with us. 
that house started being built and I watched it be, being built block for block up along right up to the roof and took pictures. I used to lean out here out this little window with my phone and take a picture. So they're all from the same angle, every single picture. Yeah. But it kept me going. And then I knew little Peter was on the way and, and now I have him to cuddle my second grandchild. And it's just so lovely. That was so lovely. But this was where I was most alone, I suppose. And this was where I had my meltdowns. And I remember one particular night, uh, about half eleven, Tim coming in as he would. And I just remember crying and just absolutely having a major meltdown because I felt so bad and so sore and so sick. And I'll never forget his face looking at me and just the pain in his eyes really looking at me because he hadn't a clue at that point. He'd done everything. He'd given me tablets, he'd given me water, he brought me anything he could. But there was just nothing you could do, only just get through it. And every bit of your body breaks down and you're sore here and you're sore there and oh Lord, it's just awful. But just it passes is the other part of it, you know. You wrote about this in Country Living. Yes. You wrote beautifully about it, Catherine. Thank you. So people must have responded to you in droves. They responded in droves. Look, that box there is all mass cards and letters what? from the readers, from the readers around the country who never, lots of them never met me and took the trouble to sit down and write me a card. And you've no idea what a lift that would give to you. You know, it was like Christmas cards coming. Yeah. All these cards, Tim would say another one. And just to read it. And even though some of the days I was hardly able to read, I describe it like the love of my family was wrapped around me. Then my siblings and my wider family, yeah. then my cousins, then my close friends, my friends abroad. It was just amazing. Are you hitting a wall yet, Catherine? Because yeah, I am. We're definitely yeah. hitting a wall. I think we need some nourishment. Yeah. We made some soup and nearly burnt our rounds. Hi, how are you? And at the table were her four children, her daughter-in-laws and her son-in-law. So what impact did Catherine's cancer have on them? Philip. I remember exactly where I was. I was out in the field bringing in the cows in the, in the absolute lashing rain. And uh, mom rang me and I had the headphones in and um, I brought in the cows whatever and mom rang me in to tell me that the cancer was back and of course she was upset but I remember when I hung up of course I cried um, out in the middle of the field by myself in the lashing rain. I don't know why I cried because I'd be a very positive person. I always knew that mom was going to be okay and I think that's the only way you can attack it. Wipe my tears off. And from that moment on, it was, be strong for mom, she's going to be fine. Never let us know how, I'd say, how truly ill she was. Um, because she's, she's your mom and she just drives on. Colin. One of the first things mom said to me was sorry. That, as if she'd be an inconvenience, you know. <laughs> when we were excited about Peter, was a scary time. What we were thinking was, we hope she'll be there. All, all we want is for her to meet him and to know him. Not just meet him, but for him to know her. You know, she said that out loud, she knew exactly what she wanted and what she was fighting for. She said, I'm going to know my grandson. It's great to see him in her arms now. Oh dear, oh come on. Dear bud. Come on. I, I have my mother a lot, feeding the calf, because she was the best mother ever. I make tea for mom. She loved toast and butter. Like everything, yeah. I really, really delighted for her and myself. An eldest and only daughter, Julie. 
Uh, when she was diagnosed, I was at a very busy time in work and it was really unsettling for the biggest support in life to suddenly for the rug to be pulled from underneath her. And as you've seen and heard, she is the centre of our universe and, and keeps us all rolling. So I have a physical disability, so um, home has always been a very safe place for me. Uh, so when mum got her diagnosis, it, it was a big shock for us. I finished up my full-time work so that I could be at home. So that was a really privilege for me. Yeah, so like, she lost all her hair during chemo and when it grew back then, it came back as a kind of a blue steel grey, which I thought was very nice. Loads of other people thought it was very nice and told her so, but it didn't carry with Catherine at all. It had to be adjusted. So now it's brown. But it's back, Catherine. <laughs> it's back and that's a good thing. But every time I'd pass the mirror, I'd get a bit of a start. And of course, my hairdresser, Michael in Darcy's, was delighted. As he says, I'm very happy to take some of Tim's uh, euros. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Tim, I'm sitting down with Tim, your husband of, it's a debate now, 41, 42 years. 42 years in July. And mm. how did you meet, Tim? She turned up at a mockery meeting in Ballancolic one night. I think she kind of threw her eye on me before I kind of noticed her, to be honest, if that was, if truth be told. But we kind of got together, that was before Christmas, we kind of got together after Christmas and more or less ever since, yeah. As a couple, you've gone through a lot together? The first time she was diagnosed, I was very upset for a good while. Probably dealt with grieving then, so that when it came back, I was more programmed to dealing with it and knew the, the story. When, when I saw that lump, I knew what we were dealing with. Like, there was no doubt in my mind but this bloody thing was back and that it had to be dealt with. So, just got on with it then. It's, it, like, it's very simple, Brenda, in my mind. Like, we are committed, as a little aside, we, uh, someone asked me one time, are you going to renew your vows, your marriage vows? And I said, no, I meant them the first time. And that's kind of the way it is. Like, we kind of got into this thing for the long haul, so... Whatever comes along, and we've had some fair queer stuff come along, so whatever comes along, we're in it together for the long haul, and it makes it easier when we're in it together, you know? I mean, Tim just managed everything. I think it it probably has changed us a bit as as a couple. Well, I'm not as as confident, I suppose. I have to be honest and say I'm not as confident as the future as I would have been. Um, so I really, really value every day. On this Valentine's week, after everything you've been through, yeah. over the last year and now as you look ahead Catherine what do you think you've learned about love oh love is so every day it is so important that it is just there all of the time and that you can actually rely on it it doesn't come and go it's just there and it was there for me in buckets absolutely buckets and Tim was just amazing I'm proud that I got through it and I'm proud of all the people that helped me and really, really so proud of my family. We're sailing in a strange boat Heading for a strange shore We're sailing in a strange boat 
Ah, Catherine's favourite, Mike Scott. Let me say from personal experience, that household is exactly as warm and as friendly as Brenda's report made it sound. Best wishes to Catherine and to Tim and everybody under that roof in Carrigrahan. Well, all hands on deck on the O'Leary farm as spring calving is underway, as you just heard there, as it is on dairy farms all over the country where it is estimated that 1.3 million dairy calves are going to be born this spring. 1.3 million. I'm joined by two farmers who are in the thick of it right now. Donald Sheehan is farming in Castle Lyons and Hazel Mullins is farming in Carrig Navarre. I don't know why we call this programme Countrywide when clearly it's all just about Cork this morning. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Philip. Uh, how's it going for you, Hazel, first? Uh, let's do the sleep deprivation test, will you? Um, can, can you still tell left from right? <laughs> I can, Philip. Um, I'm, I'm never very good at left and right, if, if I think back <laughs> to my uh, driving, driving test, but I can. And uh, how about look, day from night? There. <laughs> day from night, yeah. The cameras help a lot, I must say. They, um, they, they definitely have improved life on the farm, that we're not just getting up. Um, you know, we can look at the cameras now and see the cows calving. Okay. And I'm actually, before I came on, there's one calving currently. So when I when I get off air, I'll be calving. I'll be going to help her. Um, so it's a very exciting right. time and we're, we're halfway there. Well, we'll make allowances for you sounding slightly distracted. But as president of Veterinary Ireland, tell me, is there something scientific to people saying that their calves are bigger this year or is that just anecdotal nonsense? Well, from talking to a lot of colleagues, it seems like they are a little bit bigger. And on my own farm, definitely the bull calves, the Frisian bull calves um, are definitely sizable. Um, and uh, I think that, well, there could be different factors involved. There could be the fact that it's, it's a long winter. A lot of cows have been put into the sheds early because remember Storm Babette hit us there in October and a lot of cows had to come in early. Usually we wouldn't have to house them until November. So a lot of cows then with the change in diet from grass to silage didn't produce no, you know, as much milk and they kind of dried themselves off. So a lot of cows have long dry periods. So I wonder, is that affecting the size of the calf that the cow hasn't been milking as long? So there's been more energy going into the you know, producing that calf. Um, and then we're also seeing probably side effects of a long dry period and long winter and, you know, retained placentas, probably more milk fevers, you know, cows are probably mm. a little bit over conditioned. Mm. So there's all this knock on effects of weather. Um, it's just a, a big circle and that's farming. Yeah. How about you in Castle Lions, Donald? How are you doing on the day from night and up from down tests? Uh, very good, Philip. Yeah. Um, I've kind of, uh, I don't get up as much as I used to. Um, <laughs> maybe put that down to old age. But, but I suppose, you know, technology has come in all shapes and sizes and it's, it's come in breeding as well. So a lot of uh, the breeding bulls now would have an easy calving index. And you kind of have to trust the technology that's there. And um, for me, uh, going back to years, uh, you can't burn the candle at both ends. And... Um, I generally now uh, leave it to the uh, leave it to God and and, and hope for the best. What, on, on what, was, the, what you, you, was the motivation you, there, Donor? Were, were you selecting for easy calving for the cow's sake or for the sake of your good night's sleep? 
Uh, a bit of both really. Um, I, I just know that uh, you could easily lose a calf at four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, more than likely than, than, if you, than in the night time. Um, because you, you, you'd be concentrating in the night and you, you switch off during the day and that's, mm. that's when you'd, you, you'd, uh, you'd lose out. So um, yeah, I, I, it's just uh, the way it is. Uh, you, you can't do everything. And um, g- generally speaking, uh, the, the bulls now are all generally easy calving. You'll always get an exception, and like Hazel was saying, uh, we don't find calves exceptionally big this yeah. year. But I, I can imagine they could be because of the the, the long dry period. Uh, Hazel, as Donald was saying, exhaustion is obviously a huge factor uh, in farm safety. You introduced safety features to the farm this year that have paid dividends in calving already. Yeah, we did. Um, so we got a whole new upgrade of the calving shed. So we have three new pens, all new gates, a calving gate. So if we ever do have a section on the farm that I have a very safe area to do it. Um, and also for just penning cows up to calve them safely, that they're not running around the house and things like that. But actually the other night, my dad had a very close call with a cow. Um, the calf was born and the head of the calf was kind of turned a little backwards. So he, he said that he'd just go in and, and write the calf a little bit on the ground. And the cow, you know, was not happy and came from. So luckily he was able to get out of these new gates and close it behind him and look last year we wouldn't have had those gates and we had a we had a a, a kind of a more primitive setup i would say but now it's definitely Mm. a lot safer and it just really brought home how important it is to me how big a factor is it as well that you and your dad are able to concentrate on the calving while your uncle does the milking and that you're not both running from calving shed to milking parlor yeah we're very lucky um my uncle jerry uh is a great help he he milks the cows and uh, you know, it's it's definitely help is is we can't you just can't put a price in it and and it really helps that you know I can do the cubicles we can do the calves. Uh, Dad does a lot of tractor work um, and then I'll you know I work off farm as well some days uh, vetting so it it just all works well and it, I'm very very blessed. Donald, you have a deep pool of unpaid labour at your disposal. <laughs> yeah, I, I do, uh, Philip. Yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. So um, my wife, Ita, usually takes a week off uh, this time of the year, um, and and I have two children. Um, very lucky to that, that when they're around, they get stuck in as well. So um, Kahal is is in transition year this year, so he he's a huge help, especially in the last week now when we hit peak and uh, Olivia's home at weekends and uh, it all helps um, yeah I would be sure I'd be pretty snookered now without it Alright listen thank you very much and fingers crossed for the pair of you and indeed for everybody else around the country coming up after the break will we be the ones to let the hen harrier go extinct email countrywide at rte.ie Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Just coming up to 20 to 9 and I have some good news and some bad news next. The good news is the government has the opportunity to avoid the extinction of a rare and iconic species of animal with a change of policy. The bad news is it is government policy that is about to cause the extinction of this increasingly rare and iconic hen harrier. 
a species going extinct because of the way that we manage the land, primarily where we plant commercial forests. At this time of year in the past, the breathtaking courtship ritual of the Hen Harrier, its famous sky dance, was something that was quite easily spotted. Now, though, with between only 80 and 100 breeding pairs left, and extinction only 25 years away, according to ecologists, you're going to be very lucky to spot it. As I found out this week in the sleeve blooms, in the company of one of Birdwatch Ireland's officers. And Harriers are renowned for a particular behaviour which we call sky dance, and that's where the male essentially is advertising, showing off to the female, trying to attract a, a mate. So what the male does is it flies up to very, very uh, quite dizzying heights, and then it plummets to the ground very, very fast, twisting and tumbling and, and turning as it goes, essentially showing off just how, how fit it is, how manoeuvrable it is in the air, and you know showing what a good provider it would be for the female, you know, in terms of its uh, hunting ability, its breeding ability. John Lusby is a raptor conservation officer. He suggested to me that we go to the Sleeve Blooms to try and spot this red-listed bird because it is an SPA, a special protection area for the hen harrier. But special protection in name hasn't meant protection in practice. Where we are here now in the Sleeve Blooms, over 60% of the, the surface area of the special protection area is under forest cover, which is obviously a huge, you know, a huge proportion of the special protection area. So it's been, it's, it's been estimated that only about 30% of the special protection area here is, is suitable open habitat for hen harrier. Watch yourself, this is going to flip yeah, back in your face now. <laughs> So 60% of the area designated for the hen harrier's protection are places that the bird can't reach. It's pretty densely planted here, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. Not a, lot of, not, not a lot of space to move around. Not a lot of sunlight overhead either. Not much use to a ground nesting bird. It's not, no. And I suppose hen harrier do nest in young forest plantation, young first or second rotation forest. But when it gets to this stage, obviously you can see, just as you've said, you know, there's no light coming in really. The canopy is closed over. You know, it changes the, the ground vegetation. This, you know, when, when it reaches this stage, it's just, it's simply not used by hen harrier. I asked the Forestry Service, who determine forestry policy, to contribute to this programme. They said they wouldn't while there was a consultation process ongoing. I asked Quiltshire, who implement that policy on nearly a half a million hectares of public land, would they contribute? They declined, but sent a statement saying that they follow all government policy. John Lusby says that everyone has known for a long time that it is that policy that is killing the hen harrier. We've known this for for a long, long time and even going back to, you know, 2015 and before, it was recognised that as the, the, the forest estate within the SPA network, as that continues to mature, the area of suitable habitat for hen harrier is going to continue to reduce. We knew we knew that 10 years ago and we're now seeing the, we're now seeing the results of that as the population has continued to decline over that 10-year period. The state identified nine years ago what the threat to the hen harrier was and in that time the population has decreased 
by a third and yet we're still sitting around talking about this. That's right, absolutely. You've summed it up perfectly there. So the development of the Hen Harry Threat Response Plan has been ongoing since 2013. Over that time, the threats and pressures have been identified, but over that time as the plan has been developed, the population has declined by one third. It's reached below 100 pairs. It really is at crisis point. What is needed now is to remove trees from the special protection areas and to stop logging during the nesting season, a policy change that would run counter to the increasing pressure to plant ever more trees. One of the reasons now for planting trees is not just for timber, but obviously for meeting our climate targets. Would bog do a better job than timber here, though? Yes, indeed. Peatlands naturally sequester carbon, um, so it's absorbed through the plants and it's essentially locked in the ground for a very, very long time. Peatlands in their natural state are carbon sinks. So restoring peatlands is one of the best ways to tackle climate mitigation. You may be lucky enough to see the hen harriers sky dance. You may be even luckier and see the female's way of receiving food brought back to the nest by her mate while she minds the chicks. The male is off doing the hunting and then when he catches prey, typically small birds, small mammals, he brings it back to the female, calls to the female, she, she knows he's, he's coming and she comes out to greet him, to meet him and then they have this, that the male, you know, is up higher than her and drops the prey and she essentially tumbles and, and upside down and catches the prey mid-air. John brought me to a couple of known nesting sites in the sleeve blooms. It was perhaps a week or two too early to expect them to have returned to the uplands, but it was a bit anxious for John that we saw nothing. How much waiting and watching is involved in your job? A lot. A lot of sitting around hoping for a a sighting or a glimpse. Are you anxious when you're, as we are now, not seeing something. Absolutely. The, the concern is that now, say, we're in the sleeve blooms, that the number of pairs will be even further diminished this year compared to what, what, what it was last year, particularly in the context of the population being so low. It, it's really shameful to think that we're, we've be, you know, we're watching a, a, you know, a species go extinct on our watch. And the situation that we're in now that we're facing is the extinction of one of our most iconic species. And that, that, that's not an exaggeration. That is based on the current population trajectory. Hen Harrier will go extinct within 25 years. It would be embarrassing, wouldn't it, to say that, uh, yes, I was a part of the generation of Irish people that knew that this was happening, but just let it happen. Absolutely. I mean, to think that, you know, we're denying, you know, future generations of the sky dance and our uplands, you know, of a hugely important part of our natural heritage, that, that is really shameful.
John Lusby from Birdwatch Ireland there. Now, myself and John didn't spot a hen harrier on Wednesday, so the recordings that you heard there were made by Sean Renane of Irish Wildlife Sounds fame. Amazing recordings. What he does is he leaves an autonomous recorder in a bush in the breeding area for about six weeks and then comes back and listens to what it has recorded in his absence. As I said, the Forestry Service within the Department of Agriculture doesn't want to speak on this programme today while there is a consultation process ongoing and Quilcha declined our interview request. But I am joined from our Galway studio by Dr Andy Bleasdale of the National Parks and Wildlife Service. They are the ones who are currently running that consultation process that is going to inform a plan that will be presented to government to hopefully reverse the decline in hen harrier numbers. Good morning to you, Dr Bleasdale. Good morning, Philip, and to all your listeners. Do you accept John Lusby and Birdwatch Ireland's assertion that the hen harrier is now going to go extinct within 25 years if we continue business as usual? Well, Philip, the hen harrier is a bird of prey that, like curlew and breeding waders, they've suffered declines in recent decades due to changes at landscape level uh, in the areas that they breed, nest and forage in. So I suppose doctors might differ and patients might die in the context of, you know, the precise calibration of the extinction extinction timelines. But it's clear if we do nothing in, in that context that the future prospects for Hen Harry are quite poor. But I wouldn't accept that we're going to just sit back and watch this happen. I think the whole purpose of the threat response plan is to progress actions that would address those threats and pressures to seek to improve the future prospects for the species. I suppose the concern is that that threat response plan has been nine years in the formulation and in that time we've seen the population decline by a third. So it's really up to government to take from your plan and implement or form actual policy, isn't it? It's not the cavalry appearing on the horizon just yet. No, completely. But I mean, the, the plan has been a long, a long, a long gestating uh, national conversation in relation to what the next steps are. We can keep talking or we can progress actions. And that is the purpose of the public consultation at the moment is to finalise the plan, to bring it to government and to get a mandate from government that would inform policy in relation to future prospects mm-hmm. for Hen Harrier. The next steps to be taken nationally, but also within the SPAs that John Lusby was mentioning there. Yeah, there are other threats to the Hen Harrier than what we mentioned in that report. There's wind turbines, there's loss of a habitat to farming and so on. But does the NPWS share the view that loss of habitat through afforestation of SBAs in particular, is perhaps the biggest threat? I think it would be hard to come up with a bland statement or a specific statement in relation to what the top threat is within the SPA network or for the species more generally in the wider countryside. It's a combination of all of the pressures that you've mentioned from agriculture to wind farms, wind turbines, to recreation, to climate change, in fact, burning of uplands, illegal persecution. But we have to also put forestry into the mix in that conversation. And that pressure is different at each, in each of the sites. So that's what we're seeking to do. It's not to come up with a kind of a, an overall assessment of the threats and pressures and just come to that conclusion. It's to actually translate that conversation to site-specific action and delivery within each of the SBAs. It's clear, though, whatever the threats are, that what the hen harrier needs is more habitat and ideally more habitat in upland areas. So would removing trees in those special protection areas be one of the measures that is going to be suggested to government now? 
Yes, it would. We're not going to be particular or granular in relation to what precisely needs to happen within each of the SPAs. We want to be given the opportunity to use the toolbox that is to consider what might need to happen in each of the SPAs. So in the forestry context, uh, the threat response plan or the draft the draft plan is currently constituted, looks at an overall reduction in the forest footprint within the SPAs. That's one of the actions within the plan. It also looks at rebalancing the age, age class structure of the forest holding within each of the SPAs and also reducing the edge effect of forestry within those SPAs as well because that's a, a real access point for predators that can also take out the species too. So that's all in the mix, Philip. The commercial forest industry has pushed back against this. They say that they can't afford the kind of restrictions envisaged in the plan that areas would be taken out of forestry and never put back into it again. Is there a way to accommodate that sector or does somebody have to lose out here if the hen harrier is to be saved? I think we're going to just have to work out what needs to happen and if that includes steps in relation to forestation within those SPAs and that has to be part of the conversation. And that conversation is already happening with the Forest Service and with Quilcha. The plan itself uh, reflects an agreement from the Forest Service that there won't be any further forestation within the SPA network and also considers and envisages selective forest removal within that network as well. Mm-hmm. So, But the Forest Service has the agreed toolbox. there, Andy, to no further forestation. The Forest Service hasn't agreed yet to remove forests. It, it has agreed to envisage um, the selective forestry removal within those SPAs. So that is part of the toolbox mix as well. That is part of the consideration and where that is required, that will be proactively progressed in partnership, obviously, with Quilcha, the Forest Service and other stakeholders as well. We are still in a consultation process until Tuesday. How do people, can people make submissions to it? Yeah, as you said, the, the plan is still open for public comment and it'll be published upon adoption by government once the plan has been finalised. It's, it's still open, as you said, until Tuesday. All the details in relation to that uh, public conversation are available on the MPWS website. So I'd encourage people to look into it and if they're interested, which I hope they would be, to give us feedback in relation to the constitution of the plan. OK. Dr Andy Bleasdale of the NPWS, thank you very much. I think it's worthy of note that when I was chatting to Sean Renane from Irish Wildlife Sounds that we got to talking about another ground-nesting bird that lives in similar habitat to the hen harrier, the ring ousel. This is a bird that has an even more shocking story to tell than the hen harrier. There is, it would appear, only one breeding pair left in the country. Now, he asked me not to say where it is, but with only one pair left, there obviously there isn't the genetic material there to continue the species. So I'm afraid the bad news this morning, folks, is that to all intents and purposes, this is a species, the ring ousel, this is a species that we have killed off, that has died on our watch. Let's return for the last bit of the programme to uh, spring calving. 1.3 million births, each of them uh, its own small drama. Hannah Quinn Mulligan farms with her mother, grandmother indeed, Catherine in County Limerick, as you know. They have a pedigree Hereford herd, but Hannah has recently started milking cows, selling her organic milk locally. This spring, they are expecting dairy calves for the first time. Just before bedtime, Hannah and Catherine popped out to check on Molly, a pregnant Frisian dairy cow, and they got a surprise. But was it a boy surprise or a girl surprise? So, what have we got here? Oh, we've got a little calf, definitely. Oh, look. Look at Molly. And she's licking the calf. I wonder what it is. Is it a heifer, Hannah? 
or a bull. I don't know. What, what do you think? A Frisian cow. It's, but isn't it the first Frisian cow that's been born here in what? 80 years or oh, something probably, like this? Yeah, probably, <laughs> yes. Oh. oh my goodness. What if it's a heifer? It would be brilliant. Yeah, but she's a super cow. Yeah. Well, we probably need to get Colostrum into him, and it's getting a bit late. Will we put her into the calving gate and milk her out? Yeah, definitely. Yes. Good girl, Molly. Come on. Good girl. You got a bucket of feed there. Come on. Good girl. Go on in. Good girl. That's it. Good girl. Grand, you just latch that there. Good girl. That's her head secure now. Standing up nice and quiet. Yeah, I'm just going to put the calf in front of her so that she's not um, stressed. Yeah, Good push girl. Push the calf. Yeah, push the calf up to her head. Um, right, you're the master milker in this family. Will you do the, the honours? I will. Yes. Oh my goodness, she's so easy to milk. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> Oh, my God. What would you have thought if you'd had a cow like her when you oh, were growing up? I would have been so happy. Yeah. I would have been. She is so easy. Oh, that's brilliant. How many cows would you have to milk before you went to school? Uh, maybe two. Two? Two. Two, three, three, if it was, if it was under pressure. But two, anyway, yeah. From the age of what to the age of what? From the age of seven to goodness only knows. I suppose I was waiting for my brother to, to, to come and take over, you know. But, uh, yes, I, I was seven when I, I know that. Yeah. And I milked my first cow. And, uh, but I loved it. I always loved it, actually. The only bit I didn't like about it was uh, g- getting a swoosh of a cow's tail <laughs> and then having to go uh, uh, clean up and go to school. I, I think you've managed to milk, what, hold up the hold up the bucket. The bucket has a little yeah. measuring thing on the side of it so we can yeah. see. Granny, you've milked about three litres in, I don't know, a couple of minutes. Oh, excellent. I don't think That's I would enough. have let you go to school at all if I was your mother. <laughs> That's excellent. Well, that's enough. Well, that's exactly that's what nice. you need, yeah. Oh, it's lovely looking stuff, isn't it? It's so it's thick. so golden. I know. It's I don't think people realise it's so different looking to milk, isn't it? It is, absolutely. All right, will you put the top on it there? Thank you. You know we haven't checked if it's a heifer or a bull yet? No, we'll do that now I'll because that we now. have to catch him anyway. All right, Molly, stand there. Good girl. Molly's so good. She's, She's such a good girl. girl. I know. Yeah. All right. Baby. All right, OK, stand up. Good boy. Good boy. Gran, I'll get it down his... Yeah. Get it down his little mouth. There we go. Good boy. Good boy. That's it. Gran, do you hold it? No, I want you to tip the tip the stomach tube up. Yes. To tip, the, tip the colostrum up now. There we go. That's it. Oh, that's it now. Oh, it's flowing nicely. Good boy. Stay still. Good boy. I guess it seems a little cruel, but the whole idea is there's this one, two, three rule where you get the clostrum from the cow, the calf's own mother, because that'll pass all the antibodies onto the calf. Her antibodies will get passed on. Then you want to do it within the first two hours of life, because after that, the calf's stomach 
starts to change and its gut actually can't absorb um, all the nutrients that's in the colostrum after a certain time frame. And then you want, as a good rule of thumb, about three litres of colostrum in the first two, two hours, maybe a bit more if the calf is bigger. But I think, I think reaching down, yeah, yeah. I think we have a little bull on our hands, oh, a little Frisian bull, oh, not yeah. a Frisian heifer. We have a live calf. That's the main thing, and he's strong and healthy. Yeah. So, look, we have to be grateful for that. He's lovely. His lovely markings. He's gorgeous, yeah. Isn't he? Yeah, he's beautiful. All right, well, but I mean, there's a, a bit of an issue with Frisian bull calves, but we might, we might go have a cup of tea and talk about that. Yes. Yeah. Try and think of a plan, or, yeah. you know, or think at least. Uh, have a look at the options. Yeah. Um, but we'll let her out. I think we'll, we'll leave them together. The first. Yeah. The she's had enough. She's had enough. Yeah. She's been very good. Yeah. Good girl. Good girl. Hannah and Granny feeding colostrum to their newborn calf, and you heard the trepidation in their voices. What do you do with the dairy bull calf? Well, Hannah has decided to rear this one for organic rose veal. That's all that we have time for this week. Uh, Ear to the ground and its current season this coming Thursday. It's 31st season, folks. Twice as old as Countrywide. On the Countrywide team, Eileen Heron made all the choices about where all her little calves would go. Liam Mullen chased the calves around the pen and Amandine Paso Devine mixed the milk replacement. Sinead Mooney's on the way with your Pick of the Week's radio listing from all of us on Countrywide until the same time next week. Good morning. Countrywide on RTE Radio 1. Listen back on the RTE Radio Player.